Welcome to Buy, Grow, Sell, the podcast for entrepreneurs looking to acquire, grow, or exit a business, hosted by Simon Bedard. Hey there, it's Simon Bedard here. If you're brand new to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast, then welcome. It's great to have you on this journey. Since its launch, I've interviewed many entrepreneurs that have bought, grown, or sold a business. And in some cases, they've completed all three steps and started all over again. Our goal is to share the stories of business owners that have traveled at least part of this cycle so that we can learn from their experience. Whether it's the dizzying heights of success or the hard lessons learned through adversity, we get to the heart of what drives success and how to apply these lessons on your journey. So join us for the best insights, interviews, and inside information on how to buy, grow, and sell a business straight from the entrepreneurs who've lived and breathed it. Hi, and welcome back to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. You know, I think we have a lot of people who uh, listen to this show who are business owners, and, and I think a lot of these business owners recognize that one day they're going to exit their business. And for many of them, the idea of exit means selling their company. And of course, once people start to explore that concept, they start thinking about how to get the most value, how to get the right deal. And, and often, if you've built your business up to a, to a reasonable size, the typical buyers end up being a larger player, maybe you know, a larger corporate, somewhere there's a big strategic trade sale. And of course, that then opens up a whole can of worms too in terms of questions. You know, How do I position myself? Who's the right buyer? What does the right process look like? Today's interview is an interesting one. Tom Caresti is a former corporate M&A guy. He used to represent very, very large companies doing quite large deals. And so today I get to explore this concept of uh, a corporate M&A buyer and what they're looking for and how they typically approach the deal. Tom shares a number of insights around things that he would look for and, and perhaps things that, you know, maybe weren't as important in his world that, um, that might traditionally be talked about amongst business sellers. So it's a quite an interesting concept. What is also fascinating is Tom actually goes on and ends up doing his own business after that, which he builds up for 11 years and then has to go through the sale himself. And being on the other side of the table, of course, has a, has a slightly different perspective. So look, Tom has a wealth of experience. He's written books. You're going to hear about this in the episode. Uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy this. This is Tom Caresti. Hi, Tom. Welcome to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast. Simon, it's so pleasure to meet you. And uh to uh, kind of just kick off an easy discussion with you. You seem like an easy guy. Oh, well, thank you very much. And I appreciate you dialing all the way in from San Diego. So it's, uh, it's obviously getting into your evening now. So appreciate you making the time uh, out of hours too. Yeah, my pleasure. Cool. Um, Tom, I'm, I'm really interested. Obviously, the, the podcast is Buy, Grow, Sell. So we like to pick on these various different topics and you know ultimately help business owners on their journey by sharing stories like yours. Um, You've got a quite an interesting background, you know. You've seemed to have done a lot of stuff in corporate. You've been involved in a lot of M and A, but you know, rather than I guess me kind of blurbing it out here, I mean, maybe you could give us a little bit of your background and and kind of yeah, just tell us a bit about your journey so far. Yeah, so started off in uh, Fortune one hundreds, uh, just out of college. Uh, for the first company I worked with, I was on a M and A team um, where we bought a large organization, and then. 
uh, I went to a third company from there, second company in the OM&A activity, third company. Uh, we had a global merger where I actually managed a merger office. Uh, that was about a $2 billion merger. And then um, went to a, a fourth company. And that the, our, our strategy was a consolidation strategy. So we did a lot of acquisitions um, in emerging markets as part of the consolidation of a market. And then I went on my own. I started my own business, uh, which was my third greenfield, but the first one on my own dime. And then I actually did that in uh, about 11 years later. So just about every stop I, I was buying or selling or doing something. Yeah, cool. Um, I'm, I'm already scrambling thinking, how are we going to pack all this information into an hour or so? <laughs> um, no, that's great. Tom, I, and, and I'd love to touch on your own business and, and maybe we can get to that in the conversation a bit. But I, I was interested when I saw your profile that, you know, a guy who's kind of done the type of corporate M&A that you have, you must have seen so many different types of deals. You've bought lots of different types of businesses. And, and I think, I guess for my, uh, for the audience, people who'd be listening to this, a lot of them might be business owners. Many of them might be imagining what a good exit would look like. And it, and it may well be selling to one of the sort of type of corporates that you used to work with. So um, I'm wondering if you can maybe take us through some of the kind of, I don't know, let's talk about some of the principles about buying a business and what you might typically look for when, when you know, a, a deal surfaces. Well, to kind of put a different twist on your question is, is look, if you're starting a business, always start the first day and to say, okay, how am I going to exit? A lot of people kind of start a business and then, you know, five, eight, 10 years into it, they say, well, I think I want to exit. Uh, and, and then that's not the time to start thinking about exiting. I mean, really, what, when you get the, the first week, the first month that you're in business, uh, start developing your vision, start developing your strategic plan to say, okay, I'm going to exit in 10 years. I'm going to exit. And how am I going to exit? You know, am I, am I going to exit by taking a public, uh, company public, right? Or am I exiting by you know, selling a company private or just, you know, what type of exit mechanism will I have? And start thinking about that from, from day one. And, and look, uh, when you're buying a business, everybody wants to buy a business. Um, and, and the evaluation is always on EBITDA, right? I mean, you know, numbers are numbers and everybody looks at the EBITDA and says, okay. And then, and then you assign a multiple to that EBITDA. And the multiple is really the strength of the brand, you know, the, you know, how fast. And so, when multinationals are looking at a company, they want to know, look, what am I buying? Am I buying a very strong brand? Uh, am I buying a customer base, which is going to be a much lower multiplier, you know, uh, because that you can always lose. But uh, what am I buying? You know, am I buying a guy who's a, a one-man show and, you know, he's the, the genius and does everything. And then when he's out of the picture, what's going to happen to that business? So really, what am I buying and what you'll pay a multiple for is a very strong brand. Um, and, you know, that, that's sustainable. So even when you take the owner out, even if you lose one or two customers or three customers, um, you still have a sustainable business. So when you're building a company, you know, from day one and you want to exit, make sure you have a sustainable brand that, uh, it, you know, is going to be sustainable when you're out of the picture. Yeah. Yeah. Great advice. Um, I'm always curious, you, you know, and, and obviously we, we, we're involved in a lot of different transactions where we're helping business owners who are selling as well. And, and I guess, you know, people get on Google, they read news articles, they hear different stories about deals being done. 
and and I guess we all everyone likes to point to some of the stories where you know somebody got a twenty times EBITDA or and you know these huge sort of numbers and and they're fabulous deals. I think everybody gets excited about reading about stuff like that because it's just it's just interesting. But I, I, in my experience, deals are always a bit different. When rubber's hitting road and you're kind of in in a deal negotiating. From the sell side, they want the highest possible price and they're talking up all these strategic levers and this is why this business is worth so much more to you, Tom, and your company. And of course, there's the buyer. I think buyers obviously just naturally want to pay as little as possible within reasonable fair grounds and all the rest of it. But getting people to, particularly sellers, to understand that buyers might see strategic value in your business, but then they often, well, in my opinion, they're, in my experience, they've often, that's something that they're bringing to the table as well. Like they, they, yes, your business, we could do a lot with your business, but that's value we bring. They're not necessarily willing to pay these ridiculous multiples. I shouldn't say ridiculous. I mean, lovely. I'd, if I could get a 20-time multiple for my client, it's a party for everybody. But, <laughs> but business owners, there, there's this element of, well, what is possible? Yes, that's possible. But what is realistic? And I, I, I don't know, have you got an opinion around that or can you share any insights around this negotiation piece and how to narrow down on that multiple a bit more? Well, you know, let's start with the fact that, uh, you know, and I don't know what the percentage is, but it's fairly high. Like, I don't know, about six or seven out of 10 mergers fail, you know, and they never deliver the value that uh, that people uh, assume that, you know, w- will deliver. So it's a, it's a high ratio of failure. Uh, can I can I jump in on that that statistic yeah, quickly? And I'm sorry sorry to interrupt you, but and and let's just go with the st- the stat for a moment. But I I want to clarify: do, Are you saying they're failing as in the deal fails, and, and this is an important point, as in it doesn't get off the ground, or deals go through but in the end prove to be a bit of a failure because the value is not captured? So deals go through, but they 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 are um, you know they they overestimate. Uh, the value that's going to happen through that transaction, and it doesn't materialize as much as you can. I mean, you know, the, the the one that comes to mind is you know Microsoft paying a bundle for Ericsson, and then you know they went into the phone business for what four years, and then they shut it down. I mean, you know, it's like yeah, yeah, talk about yeah. talk about that failure. I mean, I, I never understood that one, but um, so so when I look at an acquisition and and we we're looking at that EBITDA multiple that you you speak about um, from a from a buyer side, what the discipline that I always try to uh, instill is to say, look, calculate the synergies in um, below the sales line, right? So if if you have synergies in fixed cost, uh, if because you know you have maybe some payroll deductions, maybe some real estate deductions, uh, synergies in um, in other parts of the organization, maybe in sometimes something in the cost of goods because you know um, because of bulk volume or, or something. So uh, if 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 there are synergies in the acquisition below the sales line, uh, those are those those are surely you can calculate into the valuation process. A lot of people make a mistake of saying, okay, well, we're going to get sales synergies and we're going to have, you know, because we're going to um, uh, to to actually put their products into our distribution model or into our marketing, whatever, all of a sudden they start seeing synergies in sales and that may or may not be there. But like you said, for God's sakes, don't pay for that, right? Um, in, in, in fact, don't even count on that. So if if it does benefit, it does come through, well, let's have a party. Uh, 
but but don't count on it because that's where a, a lot of people overvalue and um and those synergies never materialize yeah 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 that's um it, it is interesting um out, out of curiosity um can, can i ask what what would have been one of the sort of what, what are some of the multiple ranges you've seen in in some of the deals you've done well i mean i was in consumer goods so anywhere from from eight to twelve uh ebitda and consumer goods was a healthy range um but look you know if you look at the you know technology mergers i mean you know you've got ebitda's 60 or 70 i mean i i don't know where these numbers come from but somebody somewhere i guess is is justifying it but you know in the consumer goods section that was you know between 8 and 12 was was something that was a reasonable number that you looked at and then you kind of massaged it and 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 to be fair here too tom like because because obviously size matters in these deals and, and helps with multiples T- typically speaking i mean maybe if you can give me a turnover or an ebit number or something like that but b- broadly sort of speaking what were the size of the companies that that you were doing acquisitions of well the ones that uh, come to mind are we're doing a consolidation strategy in emerging markets and um 12 million was probably the smallest um average is that turnover or EBITDA? uh that was sales that was turnover right cool um, okay and then um I think the largest was about, I think maybe over a hundred, well over a hundred million, um, and and then the the merger office of the uh, when I ran the merger office of of the two larger organization, you know, it was basically about one was a little over one billion and one was about eight hundred million uh, when we put the two together. So, yes, yeah, and that was turnovers. Yeah, cool. Well- one of the questions I think a lot of business owners listening to this right now would say is, you know, you're paying eight to 12 times profit, right? How does a buyer get a return on that? Like, I mean, in theory, it takes eight to 12 years to get your money back. So clearly they're not just relying on business as usual. Have you got any thoughts around that or anything you can share? Well, look, again, it's, um, you're looking at the synergies and cost savings, so that's part of the equation, uh, and and it boils down to what they call goodwill. I mean, you know, th- that's how you put a number on your balance sheet, which is called goodwill, which is your strength of your brand. And um, you know, when, when you when you're buying a brand, that's that's what you're buying. You're buying the strength, and that will continue to grow. And you're not buying a brand that's looking to decline. You're not buying a brand that's stagnating. You're buying a brand that continues to grow and you know, a healthy, even in consumer goods, a healthy brand is going to be growing at 17, 80% CAGG, uh, CA, was CAAGR, right? Computer and annual. Compounded <laughs> annual growth rate, yep. <laughs> yeah, C, CAGR, there you go. Um, and, you know, 17 and 18, 17, 18% is a healthy growth rate. So that's why that's why you're paying the, the multiple. Yeah, so there's, a good, there's a good story there. Um, one of the things that we've sort of kicked around on this show a little bit is, is, if you're selling to a listed entity over a private company, um, listed entities have the ability to kind of do this EBIT arbitrage kind of idea where, hey, the, as a listed company, we're trading at thirty time a thirty time multiple on the on the on the stock exchange. If I can buy this company over here at ten times, five times, 20, whatever, right? But if it's if I'm paying ten times for a private company. By the time I take that company and put it through the wash for 12 months and it's now absorbed into our numbers, well, there's a natural 
arbitrage there because that that smaller business is now trading at our better multiple. Um, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, is that is that as a corporate M and A guy? I mean, is that kind of approach does that factor into the thinking at all? Well, I'm sure it factors into the thinking, but there's two uh, there's two dangers with that thinking. Right? So, so first of all, when you're buying that acquisition, it had better fit your uh, what do we call brand equities on your strategy because otherwise it's not going to roll up for that that multiple if it's a non-strategic acquisition um if it's just a tactical acquisition i i don't think that that watches and second of all uh that's not you know that's maybe in your back of your mind but if you use that to justify the acquisition then you know i i think again it's one of those where you're making an assumption that may or may not become true because look you may be trading a 30 multiple because the market is you know booming but if what market what if the market is a market correction you know 10 12 15 percent then then that 30 multiple no longer works anymore because now there was a market correction and your mother company is valued at much much lower multiples so you know i wouldn't use that to justify the acquisition i mean yeah that's nice to have on a back end but i wouldn't justify that yeah yeah it's uh, it's, it's I, I guess a bit like going into a new strategy for tax purposes it just doesn't make sense to base it purely on a on a, a, a little quick financial calculation um yeah that's interesting and so um Typically speaking, when you're sort of engaging in these transactions, h- how long would they normally take from, from you know, a, a deal pops up on the radar, you know, somebody has an early conversation with someone through to, you know, due diligence done, contracts finished, everyone's signed, it's better down, it's finished. Um, and, and these were not large acquisitions. You know, these were in the 30, you know, 35 million range, uh, and they took six months. You know, um, you know, one of the things, especially if you're buying private companies, um, one of one of the things that we were doing is we're consolidating and we're all buying, um, you know, companies that that uh, owners started, and you know they were you know maybe eight, nine, ten years into it, so they had a lot of pride into it. So th- there was a lot of courting going on in the beginning, just to get to know the individual, just to you know to warm up. Several meetings, um, you know, it wasn't like, hey, we're here and and look. One of the reasons we were successful is because our competition really took a very you know different approach. You know, they would come in, they say, hey, you know, Simon, we we really love you. You you did a great job building this company over the last ten years. Um, we want to buy 51% now. We want to know how to get 200 in the next two years. Um, and, and, and yeah, it's been nice knowing you. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you, you know, probably put your blood, sweat, and tears in over the last 10 years. And, and, and that's really not the best way to start off, right? So we had a slightly different approach where we really courted with people. And, and we were even, even willing to go in with 50-50 with somebody. Um, you know, th- there was one guy in Serbia who was a younger guy. and um, you know, we, we just judged his personality to say, look, he, he's he's never going to survive in a larger structured environment. So we're willing to go in with 50-50 with him um, with some, you know, options that we can exercise to get to 100 um, because we knew that over the next three, four, five years, he's going to want to get out and sell anyway because he, he, he doesn't want to, you know, he's an entrepreneur and he doesn't want to be in that, you know, type of corporate structure and and sure enough you know that's exactly the the way it played out right so you can you kind of have to really go in there understand 
who the seller is, you know, what, what is motivating them to sell it? You know, why are they selling it? You know, they want to sell hundred percent now. Um, do they, you know, do they want to stick around for a little bit? Uh, sometimes you want it to stick around for a little bit. Sometimes you don't want to buy a hundred right away because you want that transition. You know, maybe you want to ride that wave where, you know, he built an exponential growth curve. So he's doing something right. So, you know, maybe part of it is him himself. Maybe it's his contacts. So that will take some time where you can't just force him out because you have to really, uh, you know, nourish those contracts, har- you know, harvest those contracts um, and, and to eventually take it over. So you really have to have a strategy to say, OK, you know, what am I going to do going into this acquisition and, and how do I transition it onto my you know, portfolio and, and where do we cut the strings? Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. And, and, and a good sort of segue, I, I guess, you know, talking about transitioning, um, you know, you mentioned earlier in the, in the discussion about the, the failure rate, right? Like people might, you might get a deal done and signed, but that doesn't necessarily mean the deal's a success because that, that integration and transition period is just so critical for capturing value. So uh, do, do you have any sort of thoughts, feedback around like what, what makes a good transition? Like what, what's involved in all that sort of part of the process? Well, uh, keep it simple. Right. So, you know, uh, I use the example where we did the, the two very large global companies where we merged. And, um, you know, one of the things we said was we had this project. It was called One Invoice. Uh, so what did, the, what did that mean? Well, what it meant was we have two companies and we have the same customers. Right. We, you know, whether it may be Walmart, maybe Carrefour, you know, all, all the large retailers, they were our, our customers. And we used to sell them as two different companies. Now we're going to sell it to them as one companies, right? So obviously from the customer's perspective, when they realize this, you know, they're going to want the bigger discount, you know? So if company A gives them 20% off uh, on a trade, you know, deal and, and company B only gives them 17 and a half percent on a trade deal, well, they want 20% for, for the new company. You know, if one company gives them 45% days uh, terms and the other company only gives them 20, 30 day terms, well, guess what? They want the 45 day terms, right? Uh, and, and they want to say, you know, they want to see the same SKUs that, you know, cause they want to turn their systems upside down. So they want to see the same SKU numbers on one invoice, you know, to them, instead of having multiple invoices, different SKU numbers, et cetera. Uh, so that's what we called it a one invoice. And, and that, that was probably about a two month project. And that's the window we gave ourselves that in the next 60 days, both companies have to be invoicing and shipping to the same customers, uh, the two different products, right? Because they don't want to deal. And let's let, you know, let's not them take advantage of us where they cherry pick the best terms. But, um, you know, let's iron that out, you know, maybe part of, you know, part of negotiation with the customer or whatever. But, you know, we have to come with the same terms for the both companies, but hopefully they're, you know, favorable to us. Uh, and we have about six, 60 days to do that. Right. Um, same thing was, you know, w- one factory. Right. So we, we had, you know, multiple companies in, in a, you know, maybe in, in Mexico, we had two companies uh, in the UK. We had two companies. So so then you look at all the geographies and say, OK, well, how do I merge those two companies into one? Do I really need two factories? Do I shut one down? Um, I don't, certainly don't need two general managers in that country. Certainly I don't need two. It's two CFOs. So, okay, you know, where do I, you know, cut some of the heads and how do I reallocate some people? How do I, you know, uh, downsize on some people because, you know, there's no room for them. So 
that whole this and that couldn't take long. So you know, we gave ourselves about ninety days for that, right? Um, so just you know, really simple thoughts. Don't overcomplicate it. Just look at your businesses. Okay, well, if I was one business and I'm two businesses, or if you're absorbing, you know, if you're buying a business, you're absorbing it. Again, you know, what is it going to take to absorb that business? Who's going to be the general manager of the business? Who's going to be the leadership team of that business? Is it part of the local team? Am I sending all new people in there? Right. Um, let's look at their terms. You know, let's look at their best practices. And and you kind of have to do that and have to kind of look at it quick. But just give us some simple terms so people can understand. Um, people can rally behind, and then they'll do their job right. Yep. Interesting. So I'm curious, you know, the number of transactions you've done. I mean, if you're looking to buy companies, if this is a strategy, like is there, if you had to pick on one thing when you're looking at businesses and you're going through this whole process, what would be the one thing that is the biggest predeterminant of whether or not the deal will be a success or not? Well, again, is it a strategic fit, right? Um in the seventies, you know, I, I worked for a company called uh, one of my first jobs out of college was Colgate Palmolive, and in the seventies, uh, they were the darling of Wall Street because they bought a lot of stuff, right? But they bought like uh, they bought uh, this is a personal care products company that bought a rice company, uh, that bought a crystal company, that bought a sporting goods company. I mean, you know, they bought all these companies, and in the middle eighties, uh, you know, we kind of woke up and said. What the hell do we do with all these companies? I mean, they're they're not strategic, so we shed them all. Um, you know, freed up some cash, and then we continue to buy. But then, you know, they, the first big acquisition for Colgate at that time was Menon. Menon was a body care company, a deodorant company, and that was a great strategic fit. So when you're looking at acquisitions, make sure it's a good strategic fit for you. You know, understand what your brand equities are, understand you know what your brand strengths are. And if it complements it, absolutely start looking at companies that are potential acquisition candidates that fit that category strategy or brand strategy. Um, don't just go on a shopping spree because, you know, because you want to go shopping. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and money's cheap. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Can you talk to me a little bit about culture and where that fits into the mix? Well, culture is uh, it's extremely important, but that's not part of the pre-acquisition. That's the post-acquisition. Right. So that's that's one of those things that you have to very pay attention to, because, um, you know, funny, funny story. The uh, the company I was telling you about that we um, did the what they call the consolidation strategy. So this was a, a coffee company. And then and in emerging car, uh, countries, the coffee roasters were, were very, very, you know, all over the place. So that's why it allowed for consolidation. In in America, I mean, you had Kraft, you had uh, Sara Lee, and you had P and G, so it was already consolidated. In Europe, you you know, you had Chibo, you had Dawagbers, which was Sarah, which was Sara Lee, so that was also in Kraft. That was also consolidated. But if you looked at the Brazil, if you looked at Argentina, all of Latin America, um, if you looked at you know Central and Eastern Europe, there was you know tons and tons of of small roasters that you can gobble up. Um, so this particular company grew through a lot of acquisitions over many years. Uh, and during that stop, they made one large acquisition. So they had two companies, which really the lion's share of the company and then many small ones. Um, so, but the two companies kind of retained their culture. So here there are seven years after that merger, 
and and they're still living into and i'm in a boardroom with these folks and uh we're discussing you know the, the culture aspect of it and one guy stands up and he says why can't we have cultures what's wrong with having two cultures and i was just like i've never heard of this <laughs> Yeah. How, yeah. how could you have two cultures? Like being a schizophrenic uh, person, like, you know, one day you're one thing, one day another. So look, you know, culture is based on your shared values. Um, yep. And you can only have, you know, one set, and you're going to have one culture. And post acquisition, that's something that's going to happen. You know, you're going to have a company that's that's going to be domineering. And then the other culture, if it's different in another company, it's just going to go by the wayside, which means some people will leave. Some people will have to be fired because they don't buy into the culture, right? Um, but it's just the nature of things. Is it not easier to assess some of that or do, do you not factor some of that into that pre-diligence kind of checking to say, hey, like, do we have some alignment here or is this going to be, you know, like a complete, you know, oil and water mix here? I mean, is it sh- surely some alignment around culture will make that transition a lot easier? Yeah, uh, it will. Uh, I'm not sure if you're going to put that much thought into it to say, look, I'm going, I'm not going to buy the company because the cultures, you know, are, are like oil and vinegar. But look, if uh, I would say to you, is, is if you're looking for companies uh, with brands uh, that fit your category and fit your strategy, um, I would suspect that the culture is not going to be that much different, right? Um, if, if you're buying or, or trying to buy a company, which is a, in a totally different market, a totally different category, a totally different product portfolio, then maybe it is going to be a very drastically different culture. But I say then that case, you shouldn't be buying it anyway, because it doesn't fit your strategy or, or your, your or your brand strategy or your categories. I guess that's a that's a good point. I guess I guess uh, over a certain size, there's a certain level of corporatization that goes on that that kind of makes a lot of companies look similar anyway in a lot of ways um it's um although I, i've certainly seen at the other end i've seen clients and companies will certainly have people in their show even that have um you know they've done the deal and then that that cultural fits come to kind of bite them in the end and and i think i think too like i think m- maybe people convince themselves oh, it'll be okay we'll make it work we'll make it work we want the deal and then later on, they've gone. This is terrible. And you know, I've even I've even had founders who've said they've walked out on their earnouts because they just said I hated it so much that I was willing to just let the money go because I, I just couldn't stand being there. And I thought, well, that that's a horrible situation to be in. But I, I always thought when I hear that, that, there must have been some precursors for them that they could tell maybe or or signs that it might might be a bit more of an uphill battle. Well, look, the the other thing is. Um... You know, a lot of companies have cultures, but it's a culture that's not working because it's not really, you know, it may be just a poster on a wall. Uh, it may be a nice slogan on your website. Uh, but when you, when you really are living inside the organization, you may find that that, that culture is not really prevalent. You know, it's just words. It's not really being lived. So, um, and, and guess what? It's probable that a, a company that actually lives its culture uh, and it lives its shared values, it's probably going to be a lot more successful company that has make-believe ones. And the successful company with the good culture is going to end up buying the one that, you know, kind of has a make-believe culture because they're probably not going to be as successful anyway. So I think that kind of goes, you know, hand in hand. Um, but, you know, you have to, again, be honest with yourself. You know, we were trying to buy a company in Brazil and, uh, you know, we had everybody in the room 
And we went around the room. One of the things that we did always is, is before we pulled the trigger on any acquisitions, we went around the room and we had all the players there, uh, all the decision makers went around the room and say, okay, yeah or nay and why? And um, in this particular situation, we had um, two guys who were representing the local team. They were the CEO and the CFO. And then we had a guy who was uh, corporate strategy, another guy, corporate acquisitions and you know, uh, a lawyer, um, the CFO, myself, and and my boss, and we went out in the room, and you know, everybody worked hard on these acquisitions. We spent about three or four months on it, so everybody wanted it, right? We we said, look, strategically, it's a, it's a fit. It makes all the sense in the world. So we went out in the room, and everybody said, yeah, except for two people. The local CFO and a local CS said, CEO said no because we have other priorities. So I so so it came to me for my vote, and I said. This makes no sense to me, right? I, you know, strategically it makes sense. Uh, you know, it, it you should do it for all the right reasons. But if the two guys who are going to make it work are not not for it, why would you do this, right? So, so, so I, I I voted no. I mean, it, and everybody got you know, oh, you know, that was you know, Tom, why are you being so political? I said, I'm not being political. I'm just being a realist. I mean, yeah, we all wanted it. We all worked hard for the last three months. It's a shame. But if the two guys who are going to make this work, you know, you're not going to manage this remotely. You know, you're, you know, you're in Israel, I'm in Holland, and then two guys in Brazil are not going to put their heart and soul into it. This will never going to work. Then you're going to waste your money. So why bother? Don't even start. So Yeah, yeah, that's, a, I think, a great perspective. So, and, 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 you know, a lot of this sort of stuff is around leadership culture is, is no doubt what, what you get involved in a bit these days. And, I, and, and we'll, I guess we'll get to talking about what you're doing now. And I know you've released a book and, and things like that as well. But can we, can we touch on a little bit here? You talked about going off, uh, you know, your third greenfield. You know, you went into business for yourself after all of this. And I think you said it was for 11 years. Can, can you give us a quick price here? What, what was that business about and, and what was the approach? You know, did you start it? Did you buy something to start with or, you know? How did you go about that business? So that I had two greenfields under my belt for Fortune 100s. And then uh, at that time, um, we had a strategic alliance. The company that I worked with had a strategic alliance with one of the largest coffee roasters in Italy, which is called Lavazza. And, um, you know, Lavazza had uh, really in Italy, they managed the entire supply chain. But outside of Italy, they always had local partners. And in fact, we partner up with them so they would have one-stop shopping in all emerging markets. So we represent that in Latin America, you know, Central and Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Uh, that's why we had that memory of understanding with them. Um, and then they, you know, for personal reasons, I want to go back to the US. I was an expat for about 20 years. So um, th this was one way to get back to the US. And I set up my own distribution business in Northern California, um, actually all of California. And, uh, you know, it was just leveraging that relationship with Lovato and starting a distribution business in, in, in California. So, you know, it's not something that I, I, I would have done, um, you know, off, a, you know, snap my finger. I think I have my own corporate distribution company, but it's just, you know, using, you know, being in the business. So understanding the business and uh, having that relationship, it, it made sense, you know, all the sense in the world to me. And the reason I picked the spot was because if you looked at just, you know, Coffee consumption, you know, the the, the Northern California area, they're, they're almost like, you know, Serbia or, or Denmark or Norway. They just drink a lot of freaking coffee, right? So, you know, <laughs> consumption numbers said that's a good place to go. 
Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah, and, and I guess as an entry strategy, having that relationship with an existing client is an operating business. It's not like you have to come up with some idea and go out and try to find customer number one and, you know, how does this all work? So um, so you hung on to that for 11 years and then you exited. So can, can am I presuming correct in saying that did you sell the company or what, what happened at the, the back end? Yeah, yeah, sold it. Uh, I, I was... Uh... I was a little greedy in hindsight. Um, I, I probably got done much better if I did it three years before. Uh, I hung on to it about three years too long. Uh, so I did sell it, but uh, I, I could have got a much higher multiple if I sold it three years before. What, what, why is that? Why, what, what happened in the three years? Uh, just the market dynamics, you know. Um, I, we, we had a very good, uh, at that time, uh, America's Cup was in the in the Bay Area. Uh, a lot of excitement. Uh, we were actually one of the uh, sponsors for Team USA, which is Oracle, and uh, so that came with a lot of publicity, a lot of volume. Uh, that would have been a great time to uh, to get out. Did Did you have any buyers snooping around at the time, or was it just in hindsight just a good time in general? No, in hindsight, it was a good time. I I just wasn't thinking about selling at that time. You know. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't taste my own medicine, you know. <laughs> Too close to it, right? Too close to it. It's, it's hard sometimes. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. Out of interest, can you share what without telling us the actual number? But can you share what multiple you got for your business? Uh, well, look, uh, it wasn't a you know Lavazza was the brand they were distributing, so you're going to get a multi a lower multiple because you're not selling a brand, you're really selling a distribution business. So you're going to get probably about a four or five EBITDA multiple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, cool. And and how did it feel sitting on the opposite side of the table? Was it did it was it different or was it just kind of oh yeah look it's the same fence I'm just looking at the other side. <laughs> well, um, when you're selling the business, you're trying to highlight and you're trying to glorify some of your accomplishments and some of your numbers. So yeah. I'm not saying I'm not saying you're fudging the numbers because you know you're not going to fudge them, but you're trying to really highlight and glorify some things, and you know the buyer is going to say, "Well, that's nice, Tom, but I'm not going to pay for that." <laughs> right? So it's uh, it's really you're trying to market the business and, and trying to put your best foot forward, uh, so somebody hires you, you know, pays you a higher multiple. So it's it's part of your your marketing mix to to actually as you're marketing your your company. Uh, normally, you would be marketing your company for selling your products and marketing your products. Now you're marketing your 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 brand um, for somebody to actually buy it. So it's it's part of the marketing mix. Yeah. Can, can I ask what at what point? So from where you sold, did at what point did you make the decision to sell? And and you know, did you did you have much sort of a runway? Did you have to spend some time gearing yourself up for that sale, or was it sort of fairly quick? Well, it wasn't that quick. I think it took about six to nine months until I finally got out. Um, I, I was actually, we're, we were in the, one of the one of the potential buyers that fell through. My, my wife was all ticked off at me because we're in freaking Hawaii on a vacation with my two daughters and my phone is constantly ringing about, oh, can you send us this? Can you send us this? What's this? <laughs> I was like, well, what a, what a tough time. And then the sale didn't go through anyway. And then somebody else, actually one of my competitors bought my business. So, Okay. Okay, cool. So a bit of a bit of a strategic fit there as well. So yeah, that makes sense. Um, Tom, tell, so you've gone on from there, obviously. Yeah, t talk to us a little bit about what you're doing now. And, and perhaps, you know, you obviously wrote a book, which I'm keen to hear about. So right now, it's, it's more about giving back. Uh, I'm doing less and less. Uh, 
the the book is uh, Sea Sweet and Beyond, and it, it really captures uh, a bunch of lifetime lifetime stories, both international, domestic, on on leadership. And uh, they may be personal stories, they may be business stories, and I call it the four keys to leadership success. And I find that that if if you have those four keys in your life, uh, you're probably doing something right, and you're probably you know things are working well for you. And if you're missing one or more of those keys, uh, maybe you're having some struggles, maybe you're having some difficulties. And it's just uh, you know things that I learned over you know the last thirty or forty years that worked for me. Uh, then I kind of looked at other you know I looked at companies you know whether it's Apple or Microsoft or Nike or you know Coca-Cola or you name it. Uh, companies who are successful, they share those four keys. And people who are successful share those four keys. Um, so that's why I wrote the book, to give back, and hopefully other people can learn through my mistakes. Yeah, cool. Um, you know, without going too much into the book, because, you know, obviously people should probably go out there and pick the book up and have a read themselves. But um, from, from your own personal perspective, can I ask, what, what does success mean to you? That's a damn good question because a lot of people, you ask the question, they, what does success mean to you? They, they don't know what success means to them, right? Uh, I, I would say that each individual can live a successful life if they can answer these three questions. And I'll answer the three questions for myself. So the first question is, you have to understand who you are, right? Um, and a lot of people don't understand who they are. Uh, my definition of who I am, I'm a servant leader. That, that's who I am. That's, you know, I get up in the morning and, and I serve others. I'm a servant leader. And I found that actually when I was a CEO, that, that really worked well for me. It wasn't about me. It was about something much better than me. It was about really serving my customers, serving my employees, serving my organization. So I'm a servant leader. Uh, the second question is, what are you passionate about? Right? So I'm passionate about making products better, making people better, making companies better. Some people call it adding value to others. Uh, but I don't like to say it too much because that's kind of getting wishy-washy, you know, adding value. Oh, I want to add value. And, and the third, <laughs> third question is, uh, what are you good at? And I'm pretty good at mentoring and I'm pretty good at leading. All right. So if you have clarity in those three questions, um, you get to start um, living your calling. Right. So some people have jobs. Other people's have careers. And then finally, there are really few of us that are fortunate to get to live our calling. And I think if you answer those three questions, you kind of get to define and say, okay, what is my calling? Right? And, and then you can live it. And look, it may not be financial success. Um, well, it could be financial success because if you, get, you, know, if, you, if you have the clarity in those three questions and you find a market to pay for that, then you'll be very successful financially as well. Uh, but if you, you know, even if you don't become a billionaire, at, at least you're living your life and you're living your calling. And, and to me, that's successfully right there. Yeah, that's magic. And, and you know, it's funny, I, I, I've dealt with thousands of business owners in my years and I, I find, you know, money is always a, a motivator, always, but only to a point. I, I find most people don't need nor care about being a billionaire. You know, once people get enough money to kind of live the type of life they want money drops down on the list of priorities and it's you know i think what you're saying there about you know purpose and you know having that focus and doing stuff you love and having some kind of an impact on people is it, it tends to become a bigger driver once our, our basic needs are met and we're, we're, we're living reasonably comfortably so well and i'll i'll also i also say that look um you know money money is your measure right if you look at a company 
and, and you look at, you know, what is a company money? Well, the company money is your P&L and your balance sheet. And, and your P&L and your balance sheet is not your plan. They're not, that's not your target. That's your measure of, of how well you're working. You know, if you have a healthy P&L, then you're running a good business. And then you have a healthy balance sheet, then you manage your cash properly, right? So that's just a measure of what you're doing and how well you're doing it. it it's not your goal. It's not your motivator. Uh, same, so, I mean, same thing in life. If, if you say, look, I want to make a million dollars, you probably fail. If you say, look, you know, I've got this great idea that's going to deliver, you know, clean water uh, to to communities in Africa that don't have clean water, and you come up with a gadget which somebody has, right? You probably become a millionaire because you can sell that stuff, and and you you know you you're living your calling, and you're solving a real problem as opposed to just some kind of vanity metric. So, Tom, thank you. Um, really enjoyed chatting with you. Um, are, are you happy for people to reach out and connect with you? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I'm happy to, you know, invest 10, 15 minutes of my time to talk to anybody on Zoom or on the phone. And maybe I can help that person. Maybe I can't. I don't know. But I'll invest 10 or 15 minutes of my time. Great. Well, for those listening, you can certainly uh, find Thomas Koresti. I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it's K-E-R-E-S-Z-T-I. Um, we will put links in the in the uh, show notes here. So you can find Tom on LinkedIn. Um, there'll be a bunch of other links there uh, to websites and, and of course, where you can find Tom's book, C-Suite and Beyond, The Four Keys of Leadership Success. So um, that'll all be there. Tom, thanks again. I appreciate you giving us the time. You've been very gracious and, uh, yeah, really enjoyed chatting to you today. Thank you as well. The ultimate freedom is to own a company that is valuable, scalable, and saleable. Find out how you score on the eight factors that drive company value by completing the Value Builder questionnaire. Upon completion, we will send through your business scorecard so you can see how to maximize the value of your company. Just go to exitadvisory.com.au forward slash scorecard. The Buy, Grow, Sell podcast is brought to you by Exit Advisory Group, a boutique M&A firm that helps business owners maximize company value and exit at the top of their game. To learn more about Exit Advisory Group, you can go to exitadvisory.com.au. And if you like what you've just heard, you can subscribe at buygrowsell.com to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Thank you for listening to the Buy, Grow, Sell podcast with Simon Bedard. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit buygrowsell.com forward slash episodes. Simon is the founder and CEO of Exit Advisory Group, and you can follow him on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.